Okay, again, uh, welcome to this uh, seminar of Afghanistan Week. I am Liv Kjølset and I'm the Secretary General of the Norwegian Afghanistan Committee. And I will shortly introduce the panel here and also a few words about this uh, seminar. Named Responding to Needs in a Taliban-Controlled State from Humanitarian Relief towards More Sustainable Development with a question mark. So Afghanistan Week is, as many of you have heard, um, the sixth of its kind, and it brings together politicians, journalists, academics, activists from Afghanistan, Norway and beyond to address the key issues and stimulate debate and understanding about Afghanistan. The week is hosted in a collaboration between four organizations, the Peace Institute uh, of Oslo, a Peace Research Institute Oslo, Christian Mikkelsen's Institute, Nansen Center for Peace and Dialogue, and the Norwegian Afghanistan Committee. And the week is made possible through the financial support from NORAD, Fritur, and the Norwegian Center for Humanitarian Studies. This seminar initiates out of a concern for the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan realizing that the current mode of humanitarian support is insufficient to address the underlying factors of poverty and challenges caused by climate change. So today's panel is very experienced and all of them have decades of experience from Afghanistan, but also the broader international context of donor politics and policies. So we will be focusing on the needs, rights and prospects for a more sustainable approach to development in Afghanistan, as well as the dilemmas that might arise. So I will start by introducing today's moderator, Karim Mergent. He is invited to be a very active moderator because he also has uh, a long, long background. He is currently a freelance consultant on policy, program and project development and management in the fields of rural development, humanitarian assistance, conflict sensitive development and peace building. Of the last 23 years, Karim has worked in Afghanistan with local civil society organizations. And you will find the whole bio uh, on the internet. And I will... Um, so, uh, Roxana Sharpur, she's an analyst of the uh, Afghanistan Analyst Network, and it's sort of a tradition that someone from the Afghan Analyst Network come to join Afghanistan Week, so we are glad to have you here. Uh, she also has an extensive experience working in Afghanistan for the BBC, UN agencies and non-governmental organizations. Over the past year, she has focused on Afghanistan's political and economical landscape, particularly public finance management and economic policy. And then, Huria Mossadegh. She is a human rights activist and defender and journalist with around 60 in 26 uh, could be feel like 60 years, uh, <laughs> but uh, only 26 years of work experience in Afghanistan and the southeastern region. In the fields of human rights, peace, justice and reconciliation, transitional justice, gender and human security. So uh, we have with us uh, Tarje. Tadje is the country director of the Norwegian Afghanistan Committee. He's an economist and an educator. In um, 
and has education in uh, disability rights. He is currently based in Kabul as our country director. And he has previously worked as, educa uh, as uh, education advisor for the governments in Middle East, South, South Asia, and as a senior expert on different UN agencies in Afghanistan. And then we have with us Arne Strand. He's a research professor at the Christian Mikkelsen's Institute with a long, 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 not 60 years uh, still, but long experience from Afghanistan in various also positions working with the NGOs and now involved in many research uh, projects related to the current situation in Afghanistan. So, uh, Karim, I will leave the word to you. Oh, no pressure then, thank you. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to have this panel here because of the, the, the vast knowledge that uh, just sits here in repository form. Uh, we've heard a significant amount of input on geopolitics, on security, on justice, a whole variety of issues uh, over the whole week, what the concerns are, where the constraints are, uh, some element of discussion about a way forward. Uh, what I'd like to try and do is have a discussion about what does that mean on the day-to-day -day basis for us all? How can we translate all of that input into day-to-day -day activities? What are we going to do today, tomorrow? What can, we what can we start planning for? Hence the title of this session, looking at moving away from this perpetual cycle of humanitarian assistance onto an Afghan-led recovery, which is what we would all like to embrace. Uh, by doing that, we're looking at investing and thinking about longer-term, medium to longer-term development. So I suppose a couple of key questions are that, what are the main challenges that we face, not just on the donor community side, but as practitioners ourselves and researchers, uh, in improving delivery? How can we do what we do better? How can we change our relationships? What do we need to change with relationships at the moment? How to respond to the evolving needs of the Afghan population, uh, the whole culture of treating a population as victims is now completely counterproductive. It has no place in the discourse, it has no place in what we need to do on a day-to-day -day basis. How can we change that perception and what is it we're doing now uh, in that case? Um, as we don't have a donor representative, uh, let's look a little bit at the context, because the donors tend to set a lot of the agendas, whether we like it or not, and there are political imperatives in there. Uh, we're familiar with the immediate response of the international community to the Taliban's arrival. Uh, we saw that uh, at the takeover in August meant there was a complete cessation of all forms of humanitarian development activity that were originally going through the government. The freezing of assets and the controversy around that. The removal, the extrication of Afghanistan from the finance system. The banks came to a standstill, standing in a queue for two and a half hours to get $200 once a week, sometimes even longer. Uh, the initial emphasis of the international community on humanitarian only, and that in terms of engagement, avoiding any kind of interaction directly with the Taliban government system. Well, it's, it's there, it's present, it's palpable, but it, it was deliberately avoided. A lot of international agencies then took charge of delivering assistance, going back to a sort of model very similar to the 96 to 2001 approach, where you've got service delivery being done on behalf of the government. Um, the outreach is questionable, the, the impact, which we'll talk a little bit about, 
uh, is also, uh, I think the jury is out on that. We don't really have actual figures on, on the deliverables and the impact. Uh, we're seeing a repeat of that entire cycle again. The good thing about the donor community is that uh, they too are responding. There is a, there's a dissatisfaction in the fact that the short-termism, uh, the, the, the focus on humanitarian work is not, is not enough. Developmental work has to be included, not just in rhetoric and activities. An example being the EU delegation, for example, coming to Kabul very early on. Internationals are already in the office. They're asking, requesting both national and international NGOs to come up with answers, proposals, how to inculcate development back into activities once more. How can you appropriately include women in, that, in those activities as well? They're now, they're now starting to look for it. And finally, the, the World Bank, one of the major multilateral investors, recently in September also said that it no longer wanted to just be a conduit for funds, but it also wants to take on the role of investing back in social capital, perhaps revitalizing community development councils, looking at ways of public finance management, uh, looking at economic development, not just private sector, but private sector plus, looking at other actors without directly mentioning the Taliban government structure. But for us to do that, I think one of the fundamental things we need to understand is what impact has aid had so far? Uh, if I could start with you, you've done some work in the European Peace Institute on women's access uh, to aid at the moment. What, what were your findings? Well, uh, yeah, first of all, uh, thank you. Uh, I think the questions that you said, like last night, Rukhshana John said that uh, it is a $30,000 question, <laughs> but I would say it's a million dollar question. <laughs> so, yeah, but uh, I think... Uh, in terms of the aid, uh, like Afghanistan, since I remember, we were always dependent on aid. Uh, this is not uh, something, a new phenomenon. And, you know, we were dependent on aid. Of course, I think I would exclude the era of, uh, uh, you know, communists between, you know, 79 to 1992, when uh, there was very little presence of the international NGOs such as UNICEF or ICRC and, you know, some others. But I think since 1992, but again, you know, those aids were delivered in Peshawar for uh, many Afghan refugees. And then uh, from 1992, like I, all I remember is that how much we were always dependent on the aid. Post-2001, when US invaded Afghanistan uh, on war on terror, let's remember uh, once again, uh, yeah, so uh, again, you know, like our dependency to aid did not stop. Again, like billions of dollars were spent on aid. And I think, uh, and this is like, a, I think a continuation to that. It, it is not something new and uh, no one should be really shocked at, you know, like why we are giving aid now, like, because it, it, it is just a continuation. And unfortunately, I think what happened, at least for the past 20 years, uh, there were many opportunities that uh, some infrastructures could have been built to decrease the aid dependency. Uh, unfortunately, that uh, didn't happen. And that didn't happen for various reasons. One of the main reasons are the current de facto authorities, because it was always the Taliban who would go and attack the 
you know, the infrastructures, whether it was roads, whether it was bridges, whether it was factories, whether it was, you know, for whatever you would build, you would go and destroy that. So, yeah, unfortunately, yes, I think after uh, uh, August last year, uh, and as you rightly mentioned, I think the poverty has increased significantly for various reasons. First of all, because many international organizations and companies, uh, embassies, and, and so many other entities that were there, they, they closed. And a significant number of the population, they became jobless. Subsequently, like thousands of women, they lost their jobs uh, because of the policies of the de facto authorities. And that added to the you know, already impoverished uh, situation. Of course, then, you know, like asset freeze and, you know, bank crisis and everything like, like we, we, we simply had, uh, you know, uh, the best recipe for disaster. And, and unfortunately that happened. So uh, I did a, a study, uh, a research with the European Institute of Peace on women's access to aid, uh, like, first of all, uh, I want to say that because of the policies of the Taliban, uh, the level of uh, female or woman poverty has increased significantly. Like, it is just beyond, uh, you know, imagination. Like, uh, like, before, you would much more work with the women households, who were not well educated, who were like least educated, you would teach them skills, you would tell them to how to uh, create some income generation and become ec economically independent. But unfortunately now, like you have thousands of these professional women who were working as judges, as journalists, as teachers, as uh, professors, as prosecutors, like you name it, police officers and whatever, like they are all now jobless. And that already affected uh, the household economy. And particularly with the uh, displaced communities, uh, that was another level of, uh, you know, poverty that is really so deep, particularly among women. Many, many women, like, for example, they were describing that, uh, you know, like right now, like for the whole my adult life, I used to be economically independent and I would spend my money on whatever I wanted. But now I have to ask my husband or my brother or my father, will you give me some money? I want to go to Hammam. Will you give me some money that I want to go and buy something? And what, like at least a couple of women were describing to me that it was, it, it, I feel so insulted that when I go and ask because I need sanitary kits. And, and, and this is like, I have to extend my hand and ask, can I please go and buy some pads? Or can I please have some money because I want to go and see my father or to go somewhere? And of course, then the answer is that, yeah, I have a hundred Afghani, but I, we need to buy bread for the children. If you want to go, you can walk. Uh, you can't use pads, you can use something else, you know, like, Unfortunately, this is the reality, and I think with, with the current situation, I think uh, we cannot change the whole situation overnight. Uh, 
And uh, I, 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 again, I thank the, you know, uh, all the local international organizations that are uh, helping and supporting Afghans uh, and providing aid and uh, supporting households uh, to survive, and uh, particularly in, in this current climate. But at the same time, I think if we do not invest on building infrastructures, if we do not support men and women in that country, if we do not invest on social justice in that country, nothing will change. Still, we have provinces, uh, grade three, provinces, grade two, provinces, grade one. And those grade one provinces are the ones that are receiving the bulk of aid, the bulk of uh, development uh, fund, and the bulk of, you know, whatever it is, whether from the government or international organizations. And then what is really left is for the third degree uh, provinces, they are the most impoverished ones. And how we can really meet that, and, and how we can really reach to those people who are in need of aid. And at the same time, how we can work to, you know, decrease that culture of uh, aid dependency. I think if aid was, you know, it is absolutely needed, but then for the long term, in order to lift up a nation, I think there have to be also other, other things need to go side by side with it. And I would say like, humanitarian aid with the development have to go side by side. But definitely, I would again want to emphasize that Taliban have a lot to answer and the international community have a lot to answer for the current catastrophe. Oh, thank you. That's, that's very insightful. You talked about the grading of provinces. I assume the grade, ones, grade one provinces are like Kabul and Herat and Mazar, the ones with the large cities, big yeah, populations. Yeah, it, it is Kabul, Herat, Ningarhar, Mazar, Kandahar, uh, like uh, these are the uh, first degree provinces. And then the second degree provinces that are linked to these first degree provinces or they are on, on the route. And then the third degree provinces are unfortunately the central highland or some remote provinces, like Badakhshan is one of mm. that, uh, you know, Bamiyan, Ghur, Daikundi, Uruzgan, like, you know, th these are like some of these provinces that are unfortunately falling into, into that category, and they are also the most uh, impoverished ones, like Badris, you know, like you just name it. So in, in that case, the approach should have been reversed. They should actually go to those underserved uh, provinces absolutely. first and then work uh, their way uh, back. Absolutely, yeah, I think if we, if we rightly see, like in the past 22 years, uh, Bamiyan was one of the safest provinces uh, on Afghanistan. Panjshir was one of the safest provinces in Afghanistan. Like you could go anywhere and you could do anything. I went to Bamiyan in 2019 and I spent the whole night just by myself, you know, in, in uh, uh, Shash, uh, uh, sorry, I just forgot the, um, Anyway, I, I spent in one of the districts the whole night by myself, and I spent several nights in one guest house. In Shibar? No, no, no. It was uh, in border with Ghor province. Uh, sorry, I forgot, but yeah, I may remember. Panjab. Panjab. Yeah, Panjab, yeah, okay. Panjab, yeah. So, uh, and... and this is how Bamiyan is, like the same with Panjshir. But unfortunately, if you then, you know, see how much aid was delivered, 
how much international humanitarian and aid agencies really try to help those people. It's nothing. You know, nothing. Even, even Bamiyan still do not have electricity. You know, it, 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 the asphalted route just, you know, a couple of years ago after mass demonstrations and lots of outcry happened. So is this really justice? Are we really going to deliver aid only if people are violent? If people start killing the aid workers? If people are really, you know, doing, uh, you know, showing how nasty they are? Or, or you would really go and deliver aid to the people who are most peaceful? And, and they are welcoming you, they are allowing you, they are allowing you to do things. That's actually very valid. I, I recall the Good Performance Initiative that had come out that rewarded provinces that had reduced violence and opium cultivation. But provinces like Bavin that, Bamiyan that, had, that were relatively, relatively mono-ethnic and it didn't have a, a, a problem with uh, cultivation yeah. of, yeah. of yeah. opium. And, and same nothing. in Panjshir. Yeah. You know, like uh, Panjshir itself doesn't have electricity. So one of the key and, and they have one of the biggest rivers in Afghanistan. Yeah, like they generate a lot of electricity. <laughs> so one of the key issues that the Taliban inherited was that, that skewed delivery already. So we're seeing a polarization of aid, we're seeing a polarization of poverty, uh, and in some cases even ethnicities have been directly affected uh, or felt or perceived themselves as being selected and affected negatively by the assistance. The Taliban have inherited that to a certain degree. Uh, Rukhshana, you've done a lot of unpackaging, of looking at the complexities of the Taliban government and the impact they're having. Are they a worthy partner? What should we be doing with them? Should we run a capacity building course for them? Do they need leadership workshops? What, how can we engage with them? Uh, are they, do they have the capacity and the interest to be able to start delivering on development, especially when there's a focus on economic development? Another $30 million question. I think um, when we talk about the Taliban as whether they're a worthy or engageable partner or not, our, this, this, our starting point should be um, not their capacity for leadership, but their uh, inclination and willingness to spend their own resources on the development of their own country, this country that they're now governing. So what do we know? We know that they've been very adept at collecting taxes. We have an idea of how well they're doing in uh, not just collecting uh, domestic revenues from customs tariffs, from uh, income taxes, from business taxes, and also from things like usher and zakat. So, uh, and we have a very good idea of how much these figures are. What we don't have an idea uh, is uh, what they're spending this money on. So we know more or less what they're raising. Uh, we know that the usher is going to Hebatollah's office. That's his funds, funding for his office and his portfolio. The rest of the money, we're not entirely sure what happens to it. And so, I, it, like, for me, the starting point as a donor would be to find out what the Taliban Emirate is spending money on so that I know what gaps there are so that I can go fill those gaps. Because if I go and pay for, as a donor, if I go and pay for something that they intended to pay for, that frees up money, their own resources. And then 
I don't know what they're going to spend those resources on because there's not also there's no transparency there. So for me, that's a um, when we talk about the Taliban as a partner in development initiatives, that is um, for me this starting question and for me the essential question that needs to be answered. Uh, beyond that, I have to say that that when you look at the line ministries and the sectoral. Um, actors, that a lot of capacity from the republic has been retained. There are, you know, a lot of people who used to work across sectors are still there working across sectors. So for me, that's an indication that implementation strategy is still there. Because when I'm in Kabul, I see a lot of uh, my old colleagues, my old partners, uh, people who I used to work with and meet with in line ministries. I see them still working. Um, but, and the other side of this coin is actually, uh, so humanitarian is really easy, right? It's not controversial. Everybody can get behind it. It's frontline life savings delivery. When we get into this area of what, the, what we're calling now humanitarian plus, um, this is where we start getting into trouble because we need to be realistic about what we can do, what we can realistically do, not just in terms of the funding available, but also the political uh, appetite in the donor capitals and the Taliban's own priorities. What are they seeing as priority areas for um, for uh, investing in development. I think once we resolve those questions with a measure of, with a dose of reality and transparency, then I think that it is possible to partner with them to do um, not the wide scope of um, development uh, initiatives that were imagined previously in the Republic and a lot of them really ended up not bearing fruition but um, targeted, limit, limited, targeted, and uh, high-impact development projects to support um, the people of Afghanistan and give them dur durable solutions, a way out of poverty. Okay, and, and what level of engagement, realistically, are we looking at with the Taliban to be able to achieve that? There's only so much you can do by, while still physically avoiding direct yeah. contact. We can, I mean, Karim, you can't go into somebody's house and say, I'm going to fix your kitchen, but I'm not going to talk to you about it. And I'm going to put in cabinets and I'm going to put in a, a stove and a washing machine and all that, but you and I are not going to have a discussion about whether you need a washing machine. So we have to be, there has to be engagement. There is no avoiding that. And this is the, what, I, what I've called the donor's dilemma. The donors need to come together, come to terms with the fact that they need to talk to the people who are living in the house now and in charge of opening the door and, uh, and really just get to a point where no matter how distasteful it is that they find it, if our common objective is to help the, um, the ordinary Afghan citizen lift themselves out of poverty and have a life that is about more than just survival from today to the next, then we do need to engage with 
whatever we want to call them, the de facto authorities, that, you know, I don't care what we call them, as long as we acknowledge that we do have to talk to them. So that, that's a very realistic approach, which is essentially what practitioners will have to constantly confront. The donors are kind of reinterpreting some form of communication with, with the Taliban. Uh, Anna, you've been writing a lot about stakeholder engagements and the Taliban are indeed a stakeholder in, in this equation. Uh, what are your thoughts about practical approaches? Uh, you know, one of the key concerns is that um, if, you're, if you don't engage with the Taliban, then they're going to turn their attentions elsewhere. And the most obvious choice are the non-aligned countries, as they're euphemistically called, uh, Iran, some of the Central Asian republics, Russia, China, Pakistan to a certain degree, who aren't particularly fussy about the terms and conditions under which the Taliban already operate. Are we going to have too tight a grip and watch the Taliban slip through our fingers and watch them build alliances elsewhere? Well, I think we need to separate a bit on, on types of alliances because these countries that you just mentioned are not the one inclined to come in with funding. I think that's what history has proved. We just take a look at the latest the UN uh, appeal. There is very limited funding coming in from, uh, let's say, Emirates, Gulf states at, at, at all. That's not where the funding is. I don't think there has been shipments of aid from Pakistan, India and Iran, but not really for for the state or not really for, for development purposes. So I think they are all very, and I think we also need to acknowledge that up to now it's actually the United States and European community that have actually continued to provide most assistance, but they have then tried to provide it outside of the state, which then is, is the dilemma, I'll come back to that. But it's also something about those, this whole Understanding, I think we've touched upon it, because humanitarian aid is important for a period of time, but the fundamental problems Afghanistan is up to, and let's be honest, poverty started to increase in 2012. Yeah. It didn't start yeah. in 2021. UN asked for almost as much money for 2021 as they asked for 2022. This has been a crisis in brewing, and it's been warned of for several years. Afghanistan is at the moment the world's third most fragile state, but it was the sixth most fragile just a few years ago. So it, it, it's not that... And, and the recognition here is that humanitarian aid won't resolve the underlying problems. Then you need development, long-term development assistance. And there is also recognition, if you read carefully World Bank documents, saying the aid dependency created over the last 20 years was not only that a lot of the money was wasted, it completely destroyed the Afghan economy because private sector was just sitting waiting for more aid to come in. An old friend of mine said it, but I, I tried to understand corruption in this context, and he said, but you haven't understood. Corruption is governance. The one who had access to funding had access to resources. So let's be honest on those things as well. And I think the donor community is seeing this, their challenge is then how to relate to that when it comes to the sanction regime. And they've changed the wording. It's no longer humanitarian plus. It's meet basic needs. It's continuation of support for education. It's continuation of support for health services that has been continued. And I see more and more a concern about the agricultural sector. So <clears throat> things are moving, but officially they are not moving. Um, 
And just two of us, because I've been reading a lot recently, and one of the old, you probably know him, Scott Guggenheim, that was very instrumental in setting up NSP, he's now coming out arguing that channeling funding through communities will not provide any recognition for Taliban, not at all. Mm. He says that that's probably an opportunity, but then what to use, but then what he's forgetting that Community Development Council can't run schools and health clinics and all of that. So it's a limit that you have to relate to the state in a way. I'm not, not making this very long, but all literature on state building and recovery after conflict says that you need to have a state relate to that can assume some kind of responsibility for the aid. What we are doing at the moment, we are creating an extremely Again, Guggenheim, extremely expensive side channel that is drawing most of the resources, leaving them not to end up with the population. So it, it's something about aid apparatus here that we need to look into. And then we need to talk to the Taliban or authorities. And I think one thing is centrally, but maybe Taya can go with it. What is the opportunity then to talk locally? Just a final point, because... And, and this is the whole term female employment I'm struggling with as well. It's very correct what you say, but I think the largest opportunity for female employment in Afghanistan is those who might not get paid directly, but it's in the agriculture sector. And that's half, 60% of the population depend on the income from the agriculture. I'm sure more than half of them are women. So any kind of income that could be generated for women in the agriculture sector is actually a way of ensuring female employment. You, in a way, you meet both, you at least meet needs, but in a way you strengthen rights as well, because then they have the power of economy within the family, hopefully. So it's some of these underlying issues that we also need to touch upon. It was a long speech, but... No, not at all. I think you raised a couple of valuable points, which can lead uh, on to Tadia's input. Norwegian Afghanistan Committee has been working for decades in Afghanistan, these changes since August, how have there been genuine changes in the way that you've had to adapt and adopt your approach to being able to deliver and continue to invest in development activities? How challenging has it been to also incorporate humanitarian activities? Are you being forced into a balancing act? Are you able to push the two together, how you've been able to deal with those challenges? I think the, the challenges has been, have been much smaller than we anticipated. Uh, yes, we are now what we can call a triple nexus, we can call it uh, covering basic needs, we can call it humanitarian plus. We have always worked with development, longer-term development, and when we do humanitarian work, we try to link it to the longer-term development programs. We have traditionally worked in those Category 3 provinces. Um, so the, the, the practical impact for us, the change of government, um, hasn't been as massive as one reads about in the international media. And I think when we're looking at the title for this particular session, uh, Responding to Needs in a Taliban-Controlled State, I. I would like to kind of reword it and call it just responding to needs of the Afghan people. Uh, you know, we had, a, we had a dysfunctional government that we can't only blame the Taliban for. They were governing the country for decades. Yeah? 
um, they are the cause of many of the problems that we have today. Um, the government, the parliament, the people who governed, the warlords, basically. And we have heard much about this the last couple of days. And then, of course, we as an international community have added on to this with, with our own set of problems. You know, experts came in on education, for example. Some came in from France, others from Norway, from Britain. And they were pulling this poor education system in different directions because our systems are different. Uh, and then, of course, Taliban has added a set of problems to this. So I really hope that, and, and we have Nurad and the Minister of Foreign Affairs here, I really hope that we can provide aid to Afghanistan with the purpose of reducing dependency. This should be our goal, because we have now, for decades, provided aid, billions of aid, but the dependency has grown. And then, practical issues that we struggle with is, for example, um, the Afghanistan Humanitarian Fund. Um, they provide money or they provide food into the communities. Uh, women, generally, uh, it's difficult to generalize, but generally women want food because they manage food. But then again, if you bring a lot of food into a community, you're actually destroying the livelihood of those who sell food. Um, so while money actually contributes to the local economy, but money is managed by men. So again, we have this balance of, yes, we have to provide food, but we also need to provide money. And I think we should learn from what has happened in other humanitarian disasters. Um, I worked in Indonesia for many, many years. And when the tsunami came uh, in Aceh, medicine came in for free for a year or two, with the result that all the drug stores went bankrupt. And then suddenly, aid was gone, and there was no one there to fill the gap. And I think we, with, with the single-minded focus on humanitarian aid, we are risking the same. We're building up a structure that as soon as the donor fatigue comes, and it will come soon, in spite of the very encouraging words of the foreign minister yesterday, uh, then all of this will collapse. And all the investments that we have made in building up the health, the regional institutes of health sciences to educate healthcare workers, the teacher training colleges, and in his, in his madness, in a sense, uh, Ghani wanted for all the teachers in Afghanistan to have a bachelor degree, while not even half had a diploma. So, I mean, we also need to be realistic about what can we achieve. But we need to build on what is there. And in order to do that, we need to talk with the government. We talked with the former government. We have swallowed camels before. So, I, I would encourage donors to continue to have an appetite for camels. Um, because it, it is, it's nothing new that we have... Um, but I do think we need to have a much more principled, pragmatic approach to what we do. And coordination is needed, not only with 
those who are now de facto ruling the country, the government. Uh, it's also needed uh, a coordination between international organizations uh, with the UN. And I'm extremely concerned about the, the differences in the Afghan society that are developing. You're having people, international staff, with huge, enormous salaries. Afghan who work within the UN systems, who makes five, six, seven thousand dollars a month. And then they argue about should we pay a teacher seven thousand or eight thousand Afghanis. You have a gap between those who make the decision and those who receive funding of 60, 70 times. Is that the Afghanistan that we want to develop? Within the NAC, no. So we, we need to find a new way, and, and it's impossible to do that without talking with the government on the local level, uh, on district level, on provincial level, but also actually on national levels, without politicizing um, what we do or what we want to do. And I agree with what you were saying, because I mean, we're going into somebody else's house to try to fix it without talking to the owners. Of course, the owners are the Afghan people, but right now, those who govern the Afghan people is Taliban. None of us like that government, but very few of us also like the former government. <laughs> Sorry for being blunt. <laughs> no, sometimes it's an advantage. Um, lo looking at the, the, the actual needs, how well are the needs understood by donors because as as an NGO that has to live on live or die with that relationship you also have that same obligation to your beneficiaries I'm sorry that sounds a little patronizing with the people that you work with in communities how do you balance that what are the changes you've had to make um of course, some of the more practical issues that we're struggling with is if we do infrastructure, and it was mentioned here, infrastructure is necessary for development, uh, we, can't, we can no longer hand over things to the government. Of course, then we can hand it over to the local community. That's possible to do. Um, the difficulty is explaining to the donors, and again, I would like to actually, you know, working with NURAT and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Norway is easy. Uh, working with many of the other international donors who give you zero flexibility. We are living and working in an area where flexibility is a must. Uh, and you cannot change a single paisa from one budget line to the other. And not even in Norway that's possible. You know? And then we are expecting that to happen in Afghanistan. So there need to be flexibility. Then um, what, and I, I don't think donors really understand what you were talking about, these different layers of provinces. I think we need to, to look at some provinces who are marginalized. And I thought it, it was expressed quite nicely yesterday, yesterday um, uh, early evening, that you know, the perception of what has happened in Afghanistan over many years is very different. We're going into certain communities that are poor and that have received little help, but that have been relatively little affected by conflict. They need support. But then we also see some provinces where 
all the houses are basically shut to pieces. They need support. So the reality of what people in different communities have, they all feel that they have been marginalized. And I think this is something as Estonians we need to take on board, or for us as an INGO. Uh, and we need to cater to all of those needs. And I think that balancing is, is, um, is difficult. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm concerned when all the priorities is made inside a UN compound with high walls around the compound that are not able to move outside the compound and they set the priorities. Uh, they only talk to a very privileged elite class of Afghans, and that was the case before as well, <laughs> while regular people who can express their needs, they are never really listened to. And maybe then it's our job as an NGO who is working on the ground to be the voice of those communities. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do. But very often we meet with deaf ears. And again, I'm sorry, I'm, it's not because you're here, but I really, you know, all our colleagues, it's, you know, working with the Norwegian government is so much easier than most others. I hope, and this is my encouragement to you, that you will talk to the other EU, to EU countries, to the UN system, to make sure that they set up systems for us as implementers that actually works on the ground and that are realistic in that particular situation that we are working in. That was a very long appeal. But, uh, again, very worthwhile and leads me to, Horia Jan, you said earlier on about how a large number of women have fallen further into poverty. There are also gra the grades within that of urban and rural women. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of the aid is a sort of a one-size-fits-all. So there's an expectation that it will help women of all backgrounds, wherever they are in the country. What practical advice would you give on how to understand the needs of women better? What needs to change to be able to meet those needs? Yeah, thank you. I just want to correct uh, Rukhsana John that Taliban are not the owner of Afghanistan. Sorry. Yeah, uh, just let me correct you. Uh, Taliban are an invading forces coming from Pakistan with uh, their proxy soldiers on the ground. Uh, let's not forget about the rule of... Can I allow to di disagree on that? Because that is the dotted discussion we are having here. No. Yeah, yeah. So, the, the point yeah, is taken. That's true, but... No, uh, I think, uh, I think yeah. your point... Yeah, but, uh, like, no, th 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 that's fine. I think uh, the owner of Afghanistan is the people of Afghanistan. Yeah, you know, okay. like, people like Taliban or Mujahideen or communists or uh, Ghani or Karzai, Americans, Europeans, they can come and go, but we stay there and we have our roots yeah, here. I th I think and, and we are the owner. I think uh, I already yes. apologize. Yeah, I think those in power have... I think in terms of the women's uh, humanitarian need, uh, I, I want to say that, yes, unfortunately, uh, what I have seen, at least in the past 22 years in Afghanistan, someone who worked in Sierra Leone, he or she was recycled to Balkan, and then from Balkan they were recycled to Afghanistan, and then from Afghanistan they were recycled to Iraq, and now God knows they are in Syria, they are in Yemen, and, and they have just one dress made, and they want to try it on every different context, and, and, and this is not going to work. And, and you're absolutely right. I think 
this is not just about how we can meet the needs of every community based on their needs, but at the same time, I think what the many humanitarian agencies and donors have failed to allocate a specific percentage of the aid to go to the women heads of households. For example, every humanitarian agency can say that 30% of this aid will only go to the women heads of household. 15%, 20% of this aid will only go to the women in the displaced communities. Regardless of where those women or displaced communities are, they are displaced communities, thousands of people were displaced from the south, from the north, from the west, from the east parts of Afghanistan. And they all really need a lot of attention, particularly women. Women are carrying the burden of the poverty and, and, and whatever happens in Afghanistan. So it, it is really, really important, like, target those aids, allocate a specific percentage of the aid, target it to the women. But at the same time, yes, like, uh, I think uh, it's impressive that Norwegian Afghanistan Committee is uh, having a high number of women. I, I think that should be across the board. It should be with every humanitarian organization. You know, you have thousands of these educated women. Employ them. Make sure that you bring them and hire them in, in different positions. Wherever you have the leverage, please use that. And also, I wanted to say that one of the other underprivileged provinces were Nimruz. I, I, I barely heard of any aid agency that have ever stepped into Nimruz province. And, and this is one of the most impoverished uh, provinces in, in the country. You know, how, like, yes, I absolutely agree that every, this is why I'm calling on social justice. Like, any aid, any development, if it is not balanced, if it doesn't target people in different <laughs> communities in, in an equal way, if the victims are not treated in different way, in, in, in the same way, definitely some victims will turn perpetrators. And, and we have to be really, really careful about that. And, and at the same time, I think I have nothing to say about the politics of the you know, aid or you know, governments and whatever. You want to talk with the Taliban, you don't want to talk to the Taliban. This is totally you know, not my area of you know, uh, expertise, I would say. But I think one thing that I, as a human rights activist, I truly believe is also any aid, any, any discussion, any, any uh, you know, negotiation with the de facto authorities, it has to be conditionalized. You have to clearly draw your red lines. You have to clearly say, for example, the intervention of the Taliban in distribution of the aid not allowing humanitarian aid to go to certain places, re-victimizing the victims because there are armed resistance going on. This is not, I think, I know some of the aid agencies, they have spoken out about that, but I think we need more pressure on the Taliban. Like, you cannot militarize the, the aid that was supposed to go to the uh, earthquake victims of uh, Paktika province, they end, ended up in the hands of the Pakistani Taliban. You know, the victims of the floods in Lugar, in, in the Helmand, in other provinces, those aids were handed over to the Pakistani Taliban. Like, how the aid community can make sure that the victims are receiving the aid, the people in need are receiving the aid, 
and to minimize. I don't think you will be able to stop Taliban's intervention, but to minimize Taliban's intervention in the distribution of the aid. But I think aid has always suffered from interventions. It, it Even is, yeah. under Absolutely. the previous administrations, yeah. there was always a bias Absolutely. for yeah. A, yeah. A, an ethnicity, a geographical area, even just a small tribal enclave. That has always been there. Whoever is in power, the power broker, will always be an intervening power. One of the ways to get around that, perhaps, is to be less reliant on UN agencies who are far away and don't have the necessary optics and the on-the-ground understanding, and maybe giving greater purchase and control to local NGOs and international NGOs. And Anna, you've worked with supporting and building the capacity of a number of peace-building organizations, other NGOs. Do you have any thoughts on how that kind of, that kind, the, the kind of agency could be given to them practically? Yeah, but I think we also have to be careful of saying that we should not listen to the people. <laughs> and I'm going to take it back there. Because there, there is actually this, even with humanitarian assistance, I would trust a local community to know better who needs assistance in those communities. Yeah. So why don't we respect the communities when it comes to humanitarian assistance? Why are we saying that we know who needs support in this village and we are going to single out? I, there was a lot of flaw on the CDC concept. Uh, it has been captured, it's been misused, but usually there is a kind of community organization and community solidarity in, in difficult times where the communities will actually be in a position to decide. And if communities decide, then you empower them. You empower them in the sense that they see they have an influence. That influence can be used in many ways. It can also be used in arguments with the de facto authorities. So let us not unempower the, the Afghan community by, by the aid doing the mistake. We had exactly the same problem with aid capture back in the days of the Mujahideen. We fought to be able to deliver to the people, not to the commander. So it's, it's not a new problem. But the, what I've learned through all the years traveling, talking with the communities, asking, but by the way, what do you see as your need? It was usually very different from what I had predicted coming into that village. And it's something, if we respect the Afghans, we must also respect their ability to, ex to state and to distribute the assistance. That goes not only for humanitarian aid, but humanitarian aid can be included. And then I think what we are also underestimating, and I have a lot of faith in the NGO sector, but I have also faith in the private sector. We are completely forgetting the sector that probably is the most crucial to get Afghan economy back on track. Aid can't resolve everything. Taliban is much more supportive of the private sector, including female entrepreneurs, than they are of human rights NGOs. So can Afghans sort this out? Can the private sector actually play much more part of the role, including in agriculture? I see a lot of opportunities here for Afghans to sort this out. That might need then a lifting on some of the restrictions so, they, so actually the economy can move. But there are a lot of opportunities here. I think in all great crises, and Afghanistan has been a very long one, there is always someone coming up with a suggestion for it. But if you don't keep people at your focus, then you're overlooking a lot of the opportunities. Yeah, just a comment uh, to this. And a practical example from the, uh, the province of Barakshan, a small district, small community. 
and we were by a UN agency given a certain number of uh, food packages for work. And uh, it covered about one third of the community. And when the UN had third party monitoring afterwards, uh, and uh, as you said, some women headed households, some households with people with disabilities and others. And then they came in and they found that what they had done is to redistribute among themselves fairly. So, for example, a household with no young people, only elderly, they were given, a young person in a neighboring household worked to help that elderly couple and provided food from his share. And we got a really bad evaluation on that because the UN was not able to measure the increase in food security of their aid. I thought it was a perfect example of solidarity in a rural Afghan community. And when we do aid this way, um, we are going against that do-no-harm principle. And we are eroding the, the solidarity and the traditions and culture in Afghan communities. So again, this is what the international community needs to understand. But how can you? when you live behind your walls and your barbed wire or drive around inside your armored vehicles. Mm. You had something, sorry. Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention in terms of the uh, need assessment with the communities, I think first we need to train those communities how they can identify the needs. Because I also have a very different experience with the DDR process. In a village like, uh, I think, maybe around 100 men, they were part of the disarmament process. And they all said, yes, give us, uh, you know, like 10 of them, they wanted to learn carpentry, you know, uh, 15, 20 of them wanted to learn to become a tailors, and the rest wanted sheep and cows. Sheep and cows were given to them, uh, they learned carpentry, they learned tailoring, but then they couldn't find the market in that village. And there was not enough posture for those cattle. Like we had similar issues with women programs. Like they say, yeah, teach us how to sew. How many tailors do you need? And how much you can afford really to buy clothes in this community to, to make clothes? I, I think this is also very critical to teach people how they can critically look at their needs, not telling them what are your needs, but teaching them how they can critically look at the resources, at the availability of the market. And based on that, they can come up with what they really need and how we can, you know, lift them out of the... Can I have a very quick comment? Because I was also a bit into the DDR process. And I think the biggest mistake is that we only looked at each of the men's wishes for what he wanted to do. It wasn't a discussion with the communities. Yeah. So all this reflection, it was individual thinking, mm -hmm. all these reflections were not coming into it. So it, I call it a methodological failure. More worse that some of them came over to me afterwards and said, "This, what we can, we are actually quite good with guns. Do you think robbing of NGOs <laughs> is that a good business?" Yeah, yeah. I mean, thank you. That was the greatest argument against the DDR program I've ever heard. So you trying to, you had a yeah, comment? Yeah, you know, I'm going to say something about humanitarian, but then I really want to because. We, we're focusing on humanitarian. We've been focusing hum on humanitarian for the last 10 minutes. 
I don't want to give the, develop, the development side of the house a free pass. So I'm going to say something, and then I'm going to, I'm going to move on to the development considerations. Uh, just, I have another example, and that's in the Central Highlands. Oh, sorry. I have another example in the Central Highlands. Um, uh, when we were interviewing for uh, the AEN piece on aid effectiveness of the humanitarian aid last year, um, we uh, talked to people in communities who got the aid, put it all in one central location, rearranged it, and redistributed it to the whole community. Not everybody got the same thing, but everybody got what they needed, and everybody got something. And this, I think, really uh, confounded the implementing partners. This uh, action by the community uh, was very confounding to them, but we thought this is an excellent model and something that the, um, the implementing partners should consider. So for humanitarian, but most importantly for aid and when we're uh, develop the development side of the house, uh, when we're talking about um, uh, things like the triple nexus, uh, one of the greatest barriers, of course, is the funding modalities for these kinds of programs. And in Norway, I know we're preaching to the choir, and we're, we're, we're talking to donors who are leading um, in this area. And one of the things that for us always, uh, as practitioners, is helpful is to look at countries like Norway and see if, if we could engage with them to find ways of for them to talk to other donors uh, about how they're doing it, maybe lessons learned, maybe some um, some ideas about how they can rejig their funding modalities to accommodate this kind of activity. Um, the other thing with I, I'm a, I'm a little bit alarmed. Arno, don't be mad at me. With this focus on agriculture in in light of climate change. Um, I think that uh, flogging the agriculture horse right now without thinking about how we readjust it, rejig it, how we look at the rural agroeconomy in a way that takes into consideration the impact of climate change on Afghanistan and its, its agriculture sector is very, very important. Um, and then uh, really the... the I'm, I'm really struggling um, to see the, the, uh, the development side of the house showing up with the exact, detailed, nuanced, need, needs-based programs that the humanitarian side of the house is doing. And um, this, for me, is a, is a big problem. If you're asking for $4 billion, I'm gonna need more than this, you know, personally me, I'm gonna need more than this vague kind of nebulous um, plans that have no evidence, no assessments. I don't understand who the beneficiaries are. I don't understand what the mechanisms and the modalities are. So, I mean, it's a personal call for me for the development side of the house to show up. Um, I'm sure all of this lives in somebody's head, uh, but that needs to end up on paper so that the rest of us can see it, comment on it, and reach a common vision. And then finally, like the last thing is when we're talking about women, uh, one of the things, and I really, this is, I, I, this is also something that the donors can contribute to. So this is about, it's not just about, you know, 
livelihoods projects for women and you know uh, capacity building for women and education for women it's also about insisting on pro women policies in the ngos that we fund in the project documents that get submitted to us we need to have you know a scoring point that includes that of the women I interviewed for my my last well, for the last report that we're doing, you know they they flagged up NGOs not paying for childcare and they having to quit their jobs because the cost of culture the childcare was making it a, 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 an economic proposition that was not sustainable for their household economy, or women who had to pay uh, for the transport of their own mahrams because the NGO they worked for wasn't paying for the mahram. They thought it was a, I don't know what they thought. I'm not, I'm not going to read into their head. But again, of women talking about what a, what a stressor that is um, in their household economy and how even when they find employment, uh, the, 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 they face these barriers. So that's, that's incumbent on us, that's, that we are the ones that have to look to the NGOs and the civil society organizations that we work with and we fund to say, what, you know, show, me, show me what you're doing at home. So that's it. I'm, I'm going to step off my soapbox. <laughs> Thank you. So essentially what I've heard is that uh, it is possible to move towards medium to long-term development. We can shed the skin of the humanitarian, humanitarian plus cycle and there are adequate opportunities on the ground for us to be able to do that. From communities where social capital has been significantly built, where real knowledge is available, primary data can be mined and can be exploited to influence and design and amend existing programs. The next level up, you're looking at NGOs who have to re-examine the way they do their business at the moment and be able to engage with all that new data and to be able to then move up the chain towards the donors and to be able to start informing donors and informing policy. And the donors on their side are starting to drift, whether they know it or not, towards development programs. The inevitability of it is there. So we're seeing a sort of convergence. Would that be a, a fair understanding? Please. It, there has been a lot of focus these last few days also about all the problems that we are facing. All the challenges due to the change of the government. Uh, the fact that we now have a Taliban regime who governs the country. Um, how can we deal with that? But there has not been sufficient focus, I think, on the opportunities that we have in, a, in, a, in Afghanistan where there is less armed conflict. Because that opens up not just windows of opportunity, but doors of opportunity. And I think we need to increasingly focus on that as well. And I'd like to second uh, Roxanne, uh, when, we, when we are um, looking at NGOs or international organizations, UN agencies who receive support, what kind of policies do they have in place, not only when it comes to anti-corruption and other issues, but how to promote women within their organizations. For example, as you mentioned, childcare. Um, and how do they look at a diverse uh, workforce? 
both when it comes to ethnic diversity, social, religious diversity, but also people with and without disabilities. That should also be criteria that needs to determine who are entrusted with our taxpayers' money. And then uh, the last point would like to second on also when it comes to the private sector, because we see that in Norway, I think, within one year of starting a, a business, about 50% goes bankrupt. Um, and then after two years, another 50% of those who, who manage, they, yeah. Uh, and then we are expecting a self-help group of 15 Afghan women to all be successful. Uh, that's unrealistic. But the training they get, the knowledge they get, they can use that for another try. So even if they fail the first time, let's give them a second chance or a third chance. That's what we're doing here. So, uh, so I, I do think private sector development, also in the agricultural sector, uh, and I think I've learned this from you and Gri when it comes to post-harvest infrastructure, uh, to make sure <laughs> that we actually reduce waste within the agriculture sector, because a lot of the food that is grown is wasted. So investment needs to be done not only in growing more food, but how to actually sustain that food over the winter, so that um, you have, don't have a lot of food in the autumn, but nothing the rest of the year. Again, meeting those climate uh, yeah. challenges as yeah. well. Anna, do you have any final No, it's just a comment on the agriculture, because I think it's actually in the agriculture sector we best can meet the climate change. Mm, Adapt now. And this is the prime source of income and livelihood for the majority of the Afghans. So if you really want to do something about climate change, look at the agricultural yeah, sector. And then you also, and my argument still is, that is the place where most women can earn an income. And, and there seems to be moved towards climate smart agriculture anyway. I've seen the rhetoric and some of the program designs are now starting to trickle down and encourage those sorts of activities. Uh, sorry, we're just over, but the, the irony is that a lot of these traditional practices were actually climate smart to begin with. They just weren't called that. So it's good that those indigenous practices are now being inculcated into actual design as well. Right, I've been told that we've run out of time. So uh, I do thank you very much for all, <laughs> for all your inputs and, and you know, giving us some of that, that vast experience that you, 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 that you bring to the table. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, the, the promoters of this Afghanistan Week, the Christian Mickles Institute, Norwegian Afghanistan Committee, Peace Research Institute of uh, Oslo, and the Nansen Peace, the Center for Peace and Dialogue for supporting this entire week, which has been quite a learning experience for all of us. And I'd like to thank the audience for their uh, patience. <laughs>